morning, um, I'd like to carry on in our series called The Other Side. And this morning, I, the title of the message is Life on the Other Side. I want to focus a little bit about what life on the other side would mean. If you've not been with us, we've been discussing this whole scenario taken from the story in the book of Joshua, where the Israelites had been in the wilderness for 40 years. They came to a stage in their lives where they needed to cross through the river and get to the promised land. And that there was great significance in having moved from here to there. And so we've been having conversation about not just this journey, but what does it really mean to live on the other side? And how is it possible to live on the other side? And what are the necessary ingredients to make life possible on the other side? And so this morning, I really want to talk to you about life on the other side. And there's a statement that I picked up this week that I would love to put up here. It's just a quote that I found. And so if we can go to that slide um, where it says the following. Now take notice of this. It says, we have tremendous capacity to live radically when we have been provoked by something great. I was just listening to something and, and, and this, this statement stood out for me. That it says, when, when we are impacted, motivated, provoked by something great, we have incredible capacity to live radical lives. And, and, and there's a testimony that in, in, in this nation... We have seen some incredible radical things happen um, just in the last 10 days, two weeks, where a response towards the cyclone that had hit the eastern side had, had resulted in people just giving, radically giving. I mean, it's just outrageous what, what has been taking place. And it's wonderful to see how people have responded to a need where people have lost basically everything um, in the eastern areas of our country and in Mozambique. And I've been just watching some of that, and, and, in, and particularly in Baira, just to see the devastation there. But the way in which the world and the southern African nations and Zimbabwe has responded towards fellow Zimbabweans is phenomenal. In the midst of this great challenging time that we're in, where you want to hold on to what you have as much and as long as possible. Uh -huh. And yet, there's something great, and although it's a tragedy, but people have been impacted by that. And it's changed the way that we have kind of looked at our own needs. Said, so, you know what, we can be so thankful for what we have. No longer do we complain about a couple of things. We're so thankful that we, when we, we do need rain, but we don't want that kind of rain, isn't it? And so I just love this statement that it says that we have the capacity to live our radical lives when we have been provoked by something great. And this morning, I want to show you a couple of things that God did to motivate, to provoke people towards radical lives. When they crossed over into the other side of the river, there were clear things that God did in their lives that, that led them to um, a different way of living. And we're going to read together from Joshua chapter 5. Now, Joshua chapter 5 is kind of like um, sandwiched in between great, great moments and it kind of makes me think of when you take a picture of something or a, or, a, or a scene, a nature scene or whatever, there's some, often there's something in the background that, that, that if you're really, really focusing, you'll see it. But otherwise, what you mostly see is just what is in the foreground, in the forefront. And, and the stuff in the background is not always noticed. And I think that Joshua chapter 5 is like that. 
is that there's a lot happening the, in the foreground and the forefront and, and the right in front of us. What we see is, wow, this incredible miracle of them coming through the river. And, and what did they do? They didn't swim through the river. We know that millions of people crossed through on dry ground. Wow, that's incredible. What we also see on the, in the foreground is, is this incredible miracle happening at the city of Jericho. How they didn't fight, they just sang. And praise God, and, and God gave them the city. Now that's right in front of us. Joshua chapter 5 is kind of like in the background a little bit. And so often what we would do is miss those things. And do not particularly notice them. But I want to bring, them, bring that a little bit to the foreground this morning. And so could we turn then to Joshua chapter 5 as we, as we look at that. And I'm going to read to you the whole chapter. 15 verses. And it's so great for us to read the Word of God together. So are you with me? If you've got a Bible, if you don't, um, take it from your friend. And uh, if it's a phone, maybe they won't give that to you. <laughs> These days we don't share Bibles like we used to anymore, isn't it? Because the Bible is in the phone. Oh, you can have my Bible for now. No, no, it's my phone. I've got to still WhatsApp during the preach, which I hope you don't. Um, but anyway, Joshua chapter 5, it says the following. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites were be, were, were beyond, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Oh, I love this microphone. Well done, Sean. It's working. Gee, it's just so great. That wasn't in the Bible. Eh? If you were looking for those words, it was just mine. Um, so that's what happened in verse 1. And at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord saw to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So I just want to make it clear, you know, what's the scenario here. It's like they were not then because this day, well, they had to. All right. Verse 8. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, <sighs> they took a deep breath. They remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Verse 10, While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. 
When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Praise the Lord for the word. May the word of God really enrich our lives. And may we never ever be the same because of the word of God. I want to share with you this morning, and I'm going to present it to you first of all, and then we're going to discuss it. Just seven things that I believe God did to motivate the Israelites as they arrived on the other side. Just seven things, and I'm going to give it to you there. Just quickly first, the first four, seven things that God did to motivate the Israelites as they arrived on the other side. God, first of all, prepared the way for them. God, secondly, preferred their hearts. God, thirdly, made them wait. Fourth point is God removed their shame. Are we going to repeat these again? So don't worry if you don't keep up with it now. God removed their shame. The fifth point is God wanted them to not forget. Sixthly, God introduced a new approach to them. And then seventhly, God longed for them to know him. So these are just deductions that I've made and it could be differently expressed and articulated. But I just felt to give you seven things that in this kind of hidden chapter... And amongst all these miraculous things that were happening, we find 15 verses that God used. And in those 15 verses, God did amazing things to help them to live on the other side, to understand what it is that is really, really important. And often in the midst of all these narratives, we, we get kind of focused just on the main things that happen. If you think, Joshua... You think Jericho, you think the river, you think these incredible things that God led him to do. But I want to give you seven things this morning, and I want to start off with the first one. Is God prepared the way. We firstly read there in chapter one, oh, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, These kings that were on the other side of the river, they had become aware of these guys that were approaching. They had heard of the testimony of them crossing through dry land. And when they listened to the stories told, their hearts melted. They became fearful. They had not seen a thing yet. They had not seen how they dressed with their, their army apparel or whatever it was. They probably didn't have much of that in any case. But they never saw them. But they heard about them. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if God uses us on this other side, He prepares the way for us. doesn't just... There you go now. You're on your own. He prepares the way. And, and I love this thing because that verse 1 is closely related to what happened in Numbers 14 and verse 9. And you can go read that at your own time. Because in that story, we read what Joshua said when they came back from spying the land. He says, now God will. God will. He will help us. So Joshua's mind already, there was an understanding that God leads the way. And if you turn to those verses with me quickly, because we have to do a bit of Bible drill this morning. You good with that? If you're not good, just swipe then, because that's the other option. Hey, Deuteronomy chapter 1, this is Moses preparing the people for what is about to come. And in verse 30, it says the following. I'm going to just hasten to read it. It says, the Lord God 
He's talking about the, what is hap we're going to await them on the other side, that they will be enemies. Verse 29 says that, I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Another verse is in chapter 31 of, of Deuteronomy. We're in verse 8 again. Now Moses is about to pass away. And he prepares the people for what they're going to go into. And so in chapter 31 and verse 8, Moses again, in verse 7 rather, let's read that. Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with these people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall put them in possession of it. And this, he says in verse 8, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Love that. So Moses encourages Joshua, saying, Joshua, you're going to face all these things, but the Lord will go before you. And so if we're stirred by something so great like that, that the Lord will go before us, should we not be prepared to live radical lives for Him? Because life on the other side is not normal in a sense. It's, it's abnormal. It's supernatural. It cannot be the same as a life in the wilderness. And, and a life in the wilderness, by way of speaking, is a life full of sin. A life distant from God. But when God calls us into the other side, He says, my people, I have gone ahead of you already. I've gone before you. You do not have to fear the unknown. You do not have to worry about that. And the last verse in this context is from Isaiah. Why don't you turn with me to that one? Beautiful, beautiful encouragement that, oh man, it could be quite dark in this unknown world. But listen to what Isaiah says um, as God speaks to him. He says in Isaiah 42 verse 16, And I will lead the blind. This is God speaking. I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. I do not know the way of tomorrow, God. I do not know how to live this life on the other side fully unto you. But God says, I know. All you need to know is Him and not the way. And not how to do it tomorrow. All we need to know is Him who goes before us. It says, in paths that they have not known, I will guide them. How many of you know the paths that you need to walk this week? We do not know what tomorrow will hold. But we know who holds tomorrow. There's where we place our future and our hope in. All right, he says, I will turn the darkness before them into light. How many of you know that there may be some darkness awaiting us tomorrow? And it's not trying to be, you know, negative about tomorrow. It's just, hey, we do not know exactly how, what, what tomorrow would look like. But we know that he says that the darkness through him will be turned into light. How many of you know that there are rough places that await us tomorrow, possibly? But listen to what God says. The rough places I will turn into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. So God is willing to lead. God is preparing the way. He's taking us into something that we have no clue about what it would look like, but He has gone there already. And we know so many stories in, in, in our world today of, of how actually people go ahead of others. Kind of like what we call a reconnaissance thing. You go and do a recce first. You go there and you suss out the area. And then, I mean, the typical example that I can think of immediately is, you know, with the sports teams, professional sports teams travel across the world. 
Like, for instance, the World Cup cricket is coming up, World Cup rugby is coming up this year. Before the team actually travels there, there's a whole recce trip that goes. Whether it's the coach or the admin staff or whoever they may be, they go ahead and they go suss out the hotels and the environment that they will be practicing in and where they will be staying. And they have certain pre-requirements for their team that they insist on. Say, so guys, we cannot stay here. Sorry. You cannot deal with those things only when you arrive with a squad of 30 men or whatever. And then, oh, gee, no, we don't like this hotel. Is there another one that we can possibly look out for? No, no, that's done months ahead. Same with God. He knows where you need to go. He's been there already. He holds your future. So if He's aware of what tomorrow will bring, why would you and I worry? If God has been there already. Because He prepares the way. Because if something so great like this, I become aware of. Is it not possible then that I could live a radical life for him? Because he prepares the way. He should settle us and give us absolute peace. The second thing that we see God doing here in this context is in verse, verses 2 to 7 where we <laughs> have this interesting story happen. Where Joshua calls for a men's gathering. It's like, man up boys, we're going to meet together tomorrow morning at about 5 o'clock. All the guys are like, yay, Joshua. Probably going to tell us how to fight when we go into Jericho. We're gonna, how do we conquer the land? Going to give us some tips because Joshua had been involved in certain battles already before. You know, when jo Moses' hands were held up, Joshua was down there leading the army. So Joshua has got some you know, military experience. Guys, tomorrow at 5, spread the word. Joshua wants to meet us. We're going to probably have to talk man stuff. Like, help us how to fight. <laughs> I love it. Probably going to get some new swords or stuff, you know. Going to do some drills and like, boy, oh boy, that's going to be exciting. All the men, they gather there. They're ready. They're like 5 a.m. like some of the men in this church would do on a Friday every second week. They man up and they come together. Praise the Lord, we don't circumcise. But anyway, so yeah, the men arrive. Oh, well, you don't actually know what we do because if you haven't been there, you wouldn't know. But never mind, we do walk out there healthy, I think. So all these men arrive. You've got to just picture this. Come on, this is real life story. The men arrive, they're ready. <laughs> yeah. Women, sorry, kids, coming back. See you later. We're going to go see Joshua. We're ready to fight. We're men of war. We're about to take on this enemy in the other side that we've arrived. You can imagine, I mean, just I'm dramatizing, but I can make a movie out of this kind of stuff. Yeah? It's like the men are out there. Hey, Josh, we're here. We're here for you, Joshua. We're with you. Joshua will fight with you. Joshua says, oh, guys, um, just something that God had said we need to do. Yeah, 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 Josh. Anytime, Josh, we're ready. Guys, uh, God said, it's going to circumcise. Josh, uh, sorry, uh, excuse me. Guys, what did he say? Uh, Josh just said, uh, we got to men. We just line up. Line up for what? Oh, we're going to circumcise everybody today. It was like, is he speaking in Hebrew or what is he speaking in? Because it doesn't make sense. I mean, we normally circumcise kids when they're like eight days old, you know? No way. I'm like, what is your age? I'm like 28, buddy. <laughs> It's like, what are you, I'm 32. <laughs> Guys are like, 
Sure, Joshua, that's amazing. I think I just need to go and just, my, 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 my wife's not well today, hey? Like I just got to, so yeah, I mean, this five man up thing, and it's just a bit much for me. I got to just get back, buddy. Long story short, we know what happens. And um, circumcision takes place because God required something of them. God wanted their hearts. And in the Jewish context, because other nations would have done the same. Circumcised kids. These guys weren't circumcised. You know, the shares with us. Why? Because last circumcision happened before they left Egypt. Now everybody in Egypt that had been circumcised died. The new, the new tribe that had come out, the, the kids that were born during this 40-year period, they hadn't been circumcised. And Joshua's like, God says, I want you to belong to me. And one of the ways in which the Jewish culture determines whether we belong to God is through a circumcision. So like, guys, this is what we're going to do. Amazing thing that we don't read any of the response of the men. I mean, if I was there, I would be like, excuse me, excuse me, just time out, boys, boys. <laughs> no way, this ain't going to work, sorry. No, there's like a willingness, it seems. It doesn't tell you also about what happened when they got home, because... Women were like, my husband is coming back tonight. <laughs> and he's been with Joshua. He's probably just so, oh, pumped up because he's a man. No, doesn't tell us anything about that. But this is it, that God required of them something more than just a presence in this new land. He wanted their hearts. Now, this is such a weird time to do something like this because the enemy is weak. We have just read it in verse 1. The enemy is at their weakest. This is the most ideal moment to attack. Come on. But what does God do? So I don't care what happens over there. What I want is your heart. And so God challenges them. God steps in and announces something completely unexpected. I want your hearts, not just your hands. And so here we see that the battle for the heart precedes any battle with the hands. And it was a very small exercise, a very private, but it had huge implications. The first thing that the Israelites did, because this is now, they've just arrived, hey? They've just arrived on the other side. They've just arrived. They have this moment. And God says, I want you to commit yourself to me because in this culture, a commitment and a covenant with God involves circumcision. And for the Israelites, it meant that they're being set apart for God. And they realized that before they could conquer, they needed to have covenant. Sometimes we want to conquer. Hey, I'm going to fight and Jesus is with me. But my covenant with God it's not necessarily in place. We can only conquer from a position of covenant with God. And this is clearly what God instructed them to do. And today, praise the Lord, as I said, at Man Up on a Friday every second week, we don't do any circumcisions. There's not blood spilled. There's just hearts that are opened up and we talk about these things. So it's not just a man thing. It is a thing that God says all of our hearts need to belong to Him. Today, our circumcision is clearly one of the heart. Where we say, God, here is my heart. I present it to you. And the verse that I've put up there, Colossians chapter 2, I want to read to you just this verse. 
Because somewhere, I also want to just touch quickly on this. Because baptism somehow touches on this thing of I've been given to God. I gave my life to Jesus. I am, I am His. I belong to Him. I cut myself off from my past. Because there's a cutting involved in circumcision. We don't do the physical. We have a circumcision of the heart. In verse 11 of chapter, 12, of chapter 2 in Colossians says the following. In Him, Paul's, Paul's speaking here. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Take a deep breath, men. That's fine, hey? And it says further on. Made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So baptism has this incredible picture of I've been, I died to myself, but I've been raised up into Christ. So something of the old has been cut away, and I'm now entering a new life says further in verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Very clear. That God is, through Paul, indicating that when we have died, something has been buried. But I've not, I don't stay there. I come alive with him. I come out of the water. Just another reminder for us, the importance of baptism. And friend, if you've been deliberating this whole thing of baptism, by the way, it's not an optional extra. It doesn't cause you to be saved. But it is a testimony of your salvation. That's what baptism is about. And so, leave it out with you again. It's not something that we pray about. It's something that we read in Scripture and we do. It's like, Bible says, you've got to love the Lord your God. You've got to pray about that. You read it, come to your own conviction, do it. Baptism is the same. All right. Third thing that I see God in encouraging them and motivating them towards is God made them wait. It's like, oh my goodness, we love waiting, isn't it? We're a nation that can wait. I'm not joking. I'm telling you that the attributes of waiting is a godly thing. And sometimes we despise it. We don't know actually how much God can use it to teach us much about Him. Because here the guys have been all ready to go and fight. <laughs> they get snipped. They come back home. The wives are like, there's a candle in the corner of the tent. And she's just made the best meal for him because he'd been working out there with Joshua. <laughs> she's just prepared everything. We're going to have a nice romantic evening. They come home, they will look like, you know, John Wayne. How many of you remember John Wayne? Not too many of you. John Wayne was this famous actor years ago. He was a... Um, he played in all these Wild West movies. And always when John Wayne would get off the horse, he would like walk around like this. Because he'd been riding the whole day, you know. So you can imagine these men, they come out walking like John Wayne. Because something had happened. And it wasn't quite comfortable. And the ladies are like, hey, husband. She's like, hey, just stay away from me. Something had to happen now. They had to wait. And in that waiting, God was teaching them something. Something so valuable that if we despise wait, we would have missed it. 
Again, they're about to conquer the land. Now they get snipped. Now they have to wait for everything to heal. It's like counterproductive, I would say. Isn't it? Are we ready? We've seen God do a miracle here. Let's take them on. Yeah, yeah. God says, nah, ah, snip, snip. Wait. And so we start understanding that God's way of working is a bit different than ours. So God uses a waiting moment to teach them who He is and that they actually de need to depend on Him and not on their own abilities. I think sometimes we need to let something be cut off in the spirit, in our minds, where I can do this and I can go and do that and I'm able to. And God says, no, I want you to be cleared of that and I want you to wait for my timing. And Psalm 37, oh, it's such a beautiful portion. I want you to read that, verses 3 to 7. We don't have the time. And actually, when you read further, verses 9 to 40, the rest of the psalm, you see what it means to wait. And then you see the fruit of waiting, the fruit of depending, the fruit of allowing God to do this amazing work. May I encourage you that waiting is a good discipline. And when you have a moment this week to wait, whether it's in a fuel queue or whether it's in a Zimra queue, or I'm traveling through the border tomorrow, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> then I won't have to wait. We all don't want to wait. How many of you love waiting? <laughs> You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to raise your hand, hey? But if you do, you know that God's going to actually test you this week. <laughs> so don't want to raise any hands. It's like, God, I love waiting. Bring it on. No, I don't pray that prayer. <laughs> but God knows the value of waiting. Waiting is a good discipline. Because something great can happen in that moment that will leave our lives to live radically for Him. So don't despise waiting. Learn from it. Is that okay? You want to say amen to, yeah, I'm going to embrace waiting? <laughs> you know, certain things in church that we always say, yeah, amen, God's going to supply all my needs according to His riches and glory. When the preacher says, ah, let's not despise waiting, nobody goes, hallelujah? Huh? I don't want to go hallelujah on that one. Yeah, I love waiting. Say amen, everyone, and say, no, I'm going to amen on that one. See, that's a bit risky. <laughs> anyway, the fourth thing that God did, I believe, in this moment, chapter 5, is a phenomenal thing because he removed their shame. And we read this story that they arrive, they get circumcised, they have to wait for healing. Verse 9 says, and the Lord said to Joshua, today, say with me today, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. God did something phenomenal. The Hebrew word for reproach is herpa, which really means disgrace, insult, shame. So they arrived. So this is an amazing thing. That you can be out of Egypt, but Egypt can, can still be in you. Uh-huh. You understand what it means? They were slaves. They were disobedient to God. They'd fallen into slavery. That's the reputation that they had as people of God. So they arrived in this beautiful land. They're on the other side, but they still live with a mindset of we're slaves. And so, by the way, doesn't depend on doesn't matter where you live in the world. That does not determine your sonship and your daughtership in God. It is who you are inside you, what you believe. We can be slaves in the, in, in, to our sin, 
on the beaches of, you know, whatever beautiful beaches there are in the world, of Bali or whatever those places are. But you can be free in the middle of a prison like Paul was because he had the reproach of his sin, that the insult, the disgrace, the shame was rolled away through Christ Jesus. And so here we find that, that God announces it, that the reproach of Egypt was rolled away. And they only could face the new enemies of this, lands, one, of this land once they had been delivered of their past failures. So guess what? God doesn't take them into a battle yet because they have to conquer the battle inside. There's a battle inside that said, I'm still, I'm still this. I look back at my past. This is who we are. This is what we've done. This is what our forefathers had done. Maybe that's who we are now. Our past determines and defines who we are today. God comes in one moment. He rolls it away. He rolls away the reproach of Egypt. And it could be that the remembrance of their past could have been a cause for them to not inherit the land that they were going to cross into and that they had crossed into. And that God needed to take Egypt the mindset of Egypt out of their hearts. They had removed them from Egypt and from the wilderness, but maybe in that moment they still had the mindset. And so God said, today, as you have consecrated yourself to me, I've rolled away your past. And I love those many stories in the Bible. John 4 is one of them, where Jesus meets up with the Samaritan woman, and she has a past. Like all of us have a past. David had a past of adultery. Many people have past. And women with the issue of the blood, she had a past and she was embarrassed. But the moment we approach Christ, we come to Him. He calls that moment Gilgal. Because that's where I rolled away your past from you. And there's another G that did that, and that's the place of Gol Golgotha, where Jesus died on the cross, and he rolled away our disgusting past. And how sad would it be if we keep on referring to our disgusting past when God announces has been rolled away. And friend, this morning, if you live with that mindset, I, I want to help you understand from the scripture that God does a phenomenal thing, something so great that we can live radical lives. That life on the other side includes being completely delivered from our past. And if you're sitting here this morning still living with the past in mind, I urge you to find the truth in God that it's been rolled away. If you've never allowed God to roll away your past, and you're sitting here saying, hey, I'm a sinner. I, I don't know this Christ that can do this. Hey, our hearts are for you and with you to help you understand how beautiful it is, the work that you can do. God removed their shame. The fifth thing is that God wanted them to not forget and so in verse 10, we see here, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. This is the third time in 40 years that they're doing this. The Passover is a remembrance of what God had done for them in Egypt still. 
When in one night he said to them, listen, take a lamb, slaughter it, and smear blood on the post, so that when death comes and they see blood on your doorpost, it'll pass over. It'll not kill the firstborn. That's why the Egyptians all lost their firstborn that night, which was eventually the release for the Israelites to go. And so when Passover was celebrated, it was always done in remembrance of what God had done for them. They did it again in Mount Sinai about 39 years ago, before this event, and since then, never again. Never again. Third time in the history of the Jewish nation that they celebrated Passover. Why? Because God used those moments as they did it together to remind them of what He had done for them. And so we see that today even when we come and we don't celebrate Passover, what we celebrate is what Christ has done. Passover refers to a future event because you know that the Old Testament is always speaking about what will be fulfilled in the New Testament. So Passover in the, New Test in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in, in the meal that we share together around what Jesus had done for us when He, in a sense, also we should have been killed for us. But by the grace of God, he passed over. And he took the sins on him so that you and I could be free today. So when we break bread and drink of the cup, we are reminded to not forget what Jesus had done for us. So remembrance is such a good thing. Come on. Let's remind each other of what Jesus had done for us. Because in that moment... It's something great that could lead us to radical lives. That's what happened. Joshua 3, a verse they just mentioned. Is that Joshua 3? All right. Um, it's a beautiful verse. There. Psalm 63, verse 5 to 6. I don't know how that got in there. Anyway. But Joshua 3 is where they set up the memorial stones. And, and how God wanted to... Let them be reminded for future generations' sake of what God had done for them as they trekked through the river Jordan. The second last one, and I hasten to finish, God introduced a new approach. We see in verse 11 to 12 that for the first time again, there's a couple of first moments here. First time that they did this. First time that that happened again in many, many years. Yeah, for the first time they eat of the land. In the past, for 40 years, God gave them manna every day. Remember, quails? And so here we see God introducing a new approach again to life. So God, I'm, God, guys, I'm not going to give you provision like I used to. Because now you're, in a, you're in a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to eat of the land. Which means that there's going to be some sowing and some tilling of the land and some work involved. I want to engage you in what I'm busy doing. There's a new approach. For 40 years you just sat there. Imagine. He didn't have to worry about food. So it just, boom, comes up every day. But imagine how sick and tired you got out of, of, of manna. God's grace was, must have been there. Like every day, like, what are we going to do with manna today? <laughs> manna pie, manna toast, manna this. Man, I'm hungry. Oh, no, no. Man, I'm tired of this stuff. Anyway, whatever had happened, whatever happened is like there was better provisions coming. But the better provisions was through the hands of the people. And I believe that's what the New Testament church looks like. There's not just, oh, we're all sitting here and God just deposits stuff. It's as we, 
as we labor together, as we see God use us in various fields, and you go out into the schools, and you go out into the workplace, and we are all part of this workmanship. That's what Ephesians 2 verse 10 talks about. We are his army. We are his workers out in the field. We don't just sit at home and download the next, you know, teaching, and that's our lives. We work together. And so God does something great amongst us so that we can live a radical lives. And the last one is, I love this story about how the um, angel of the Lord arrives, and uh, Joshua is very aware of, of that, and there's a, there's a holy reverence, and I believe God longed for them to know him through that story as Joshua was aware of, of the commander of the Lord's army, and we'd said, hey, listen, take sandals off your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And uh, the feeling that you get is that God wants the people to know that He is with them. And that the greatest thing they need for great exploit uh, with them for God is the knowledge of who He is and His actual presence. So God comes and just confirms right at the end here of this chapter that, guys, I haven't skilled you in anything now. God didn't teach them how to fight, how to do this. God spoke to their hearts, and at the end, He confirmed it all with His presence. And they could deliberate whether it was God himself or just an angel. But something from heaven came to earth to confirm that heaven is involved in this. And today, this is our great delight, that heaven is involved in what we are called to do. Holy Spirit is with us. And you read this last verse that I want to give to you from Jeremiah as we come to close. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is a well-known verse, but we often just stop there. Jeremiah 29 verse 11, we can quote off by heart, for I know the thoughts that I have for you, thoughts of peace and not of harm. But listen to verse 13 in Jeremiah 29. It says, you will seek me and you will find me. When you seek, with, when you seek me with all your heart, God confirms this. He says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you. So God comes. He says, you know what you actually need? Israelites speaking to them. You're in this new land. You're on the other side. You need me. And guess what? I'll be with you. Phenomenal. Profound. And God comes and he, and he motivates us and he says, you're in the other side. You've moved into stuff and there's new things and, and, and there's a future for you here in Zimbabwe. Guess what? I'll be with you. Something so great can lead us to something radical. And so life on the other side, as you look at just these few scenarios, is just filled of who God is, what He has for us. And I pray sincerely that we will, we will enjoy life on the other side because we have these promises of God that He prepares the way. He prefers to have our hearts. He, he makes us white, and that's fine. He removes shame and disgust, and, and He doesn't want us to live with that having over, hanging over our heads, and God wants us not to forget about His faithfulness. He wants to introduce a new approach that we work together, and that finally He longs for us to know Him. And so may I pray that in this all, we will understand that on the other side, there's some great things that God has in store for us. But it's for each one of us to push into. 
This is not a physical destination. It's a spiritual journey we're on. And so God is committed to us as we journey with him. Let's pray. Jesus, what a great, great story from the Bible. A story tucked in there between these major miracles and a story that we can so easily miss. But Lord, this morning I pray that you will challenge us as your people, that we will learn from this and apply what is necessary and take heed of that which you want to say to us as your people. I pray, Lord God, for a supernatural download of perspective this morning as we reread John, oh John, Joshua chapter 5. And I do pray, Lord God, that in this coming week, it'll be good for us just to go reread it and, and let you speak to us and, and challenge us and encourage us. And Lord God, where adjustment is necessary, I pray, help us to be humble enough to make those adjustments. Lord, I pray that you will use these, this story to provoke us, to motivate us, to encourage us so that radical lives would follow. I trust you for that. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name.